Hey there, we're the West Slot Pirates and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Uh, well, we got the band back together. Uh, John, you finished your bowl celebration trip to Disney World. I, I hope you made it back in one piece. <laughs> yeah, I, God was like, you can have a bowl win, but you're going to have to endure 50 degrees and rainy for a straight week in Orlando. I guess I'll take the trade-off. Now, now the real question is, did you survive the Central Florida uh, National Championship Parade? <laughs> I, I did not attend. Word tell that there was... Uh, uh, a parade, but it did not. It did not run through any of the Disney venues, at least not while I was there. Um, I don't. I don't know how you get off complaining about minus fifty and rainy when it was negative bajillion in the Midwest during the time you were gone. I'll use the same retort to you that I've used to everybody else who said the exact same thing. Were you standing outside during that, or were you sitting at home in seventy-two degree temperatures inside your house? Well, I, I, I believe I Eric and I were my driveway, <laughs> and Eric and I were standing outside in uh, in the very cold uh, in in Nashville while uh, Northwestern did take down Kentucky. So I, I believe we were freezing our butts off for that. Well, where were you? True, true. I I only had – my priorities were being with my child when they should have been being with <laughs> Northwestern <laughs> football. Look, nobody's perfect. Uh, no, Sammy, but it's, we, Sammy, we did have our beer coats on. That's true. <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny, though, I um, – that we talk about the game, and obviously I know I didn't get a chance to talk about my thoughts from the game last week, but as long as we're talking about where we were during the game, I'll give a shout-out to the Arlington Alehouse um, in Arlington Heights, Illinois. We ended up having a small crowd um, for the bowl watch party, I think smaller than it was for the Outback Bowl two years ago, and that I think was due to a combination of our game being on a Friday afternoon and it snowing outside during the game, but... The crowd that showed up was a great crowd. Um, we had a lot of fun. It was a really fun uh, atmosphere. And um, it was a bunch of people very invested in the game, in a game that, like all Northwestern games, forced you to be deeply invested right to the bitter end. Yeah, I mean, Scuzz and I talked last week um, about just the sheer stupidity of uh a lot of the play calling. Um, what, what could you possibly be referring to? <laughs> a, a lot of the, the officiating, uh, perhaps. Um, give give us a little sense of, of the, uh, you know, because I, I know I went back and, and watched some of the some of the broadcast after the fact, just to kind of get a sense of what the what the TV viewers were, were watching. But you know, in the in the moment. Um, yeah, what was the mood of the crowd like? You know, just at the at, at the bar. Well, so first of all, like when Kentucky's running back was ejected, um, I know talking to you guys, you guys were kind of more split on it. Um, but where we were, it just seemed to all of us that he basically got up, brushed the official off of him, and then got ejected from the game. It fit the letter of the law, but it's kind of like the same thing as the NFL catch rules. It's just kind of highlighting that this is just this weird gray area. And to me, I think you give the guy a 15 yard penalty and you just, and that's the end of it. Um, there was no need to eject him. 
Possibly even worse, though, was the Patty Fisher targeting penalty. Um, it was that was so off. Everyone now, granted, we were all kind of talking and everything as we were watching the game at at the watch party. It didn't remotely occur to anybody, even as they were showing the replay, that they were showing it because they were reviewing the play. We were all just looking at the replay, being like, "Oh man, look at that! He lit that guy up." And then suddenly, someone was like, "Are they reviewing this for targeting?" And we were looking at it, and I was like, oh my gosh, are they going to eject him because he dropped his head one inch too much when he made a tackle on a guy that was jumping through the air? Um, A a helmet-to-chest tackle? And they did. Um, It was was not not a, uh, a great thing. And to add into it, as horrible as that decision to go for it on fourth down late in the game was... Matt Alvidi got that got that first down, um, and as Fitz himself said in the radio interview after the game, the uh, I forget exactly how he worded it, but the replay official didn't exactly cover himself in glory uh, during this game, and you know things aren't nearly as close if the refs just correctly review that that's a first down. Doesn't make it any more of a ridiculous call, but it still was pretty ridiculous that they that they didn't call it a first down. John, how would you compare, I mean, obviously the Outback Bowl was a loss, but I know there I know there were a lot of Northwestern fans like angry during the Outback Bowl against Tennessee with just how poorly that game went and how um, brutal it was versus this game where, you know, I think Northwestern fans on average probably lost uh, half to one and a half years on their lives across the entire fan base because of how stressful this thing was. And, and especially in a, in a game where it should not have been that stressful. Like what was, what was the mood of the crowd? Were you guys pretty jovial or um, did, did it get pretty tense? It, I mean, it was tense, but the room was filled with a lot of Northwestern fans who were very much like getting stomped in a bowl game is not really something Northwestern fans are that familiar with. So the Tennessee game was kind of a shock, right? I mean, I, like, I disagree. Yeah, really? we, we've been no, we've been stomped in plenty of bowl games. Well, so what? So what? What am I? What's escaping my memory right now? Um, I mean, Nebraska. We, well, okay, so UCLA. UCLA. Well, okay, I guess so, that wasn't well, a stomping. UCLA but. wasn't a stomping. We were kicking an onside kick to try to stay in that game at the very end. It's not our fault that they returned it for a touchdown twice. Twice. <laughs> um, I don't know. It felt it felt like a stomping. But uh, not like te- the te- Texas A and M was a bit, was a stomping. Right, uh, I, Texas Tech was a stomping. Yeah, I guess so. No, you're right. I mean, a couple of those. They got away from us, but I nothing felt as bad to Tennessee to me. I mean, that felt like they just rolled us. My point, though, was going to be that like every Northwestern fan in the Arlington Hill House had ample experience with crazy tight, gut wrenching Northwestern Fair. games like that. So I mean, I mean that that was the story of this season for the Cats. I mean, three overtime games, and you know, this whole season was just like the season. It's been two decades of that <laughs> crap. The, sure. The, the annoying thing about the annoying thing about this game, um, and that was the weird thing, was we were so in control for most of the game that it never seemed like we were in danger of losing. And then all of a sudden, with ten seconds left, we were, and it was, and so it was kind of difficult to even comprehend. It was like, wait, are we going to somehow lose this game that has really not been in doubt? 
the entire time and for just this boneheaded decision, completely unnecessary decision to go for it on fourth down in our own territory. Um, so I think by the time we had a chance to process that, it was it was kind of all over. So now, um, now, to, I mean, to Fitz's credit, and, and Scuzz and I talked about this last week, you know, we the official makes the correct spot. Uh, right. The, the game's the re- over. The game is over. Right. Uh, so oh, I, yeah. I, I didn't hate that call. And uh, at, at that point, you know, Kentucky's offense had, had pretty much gotten, I mean, the momentum was on their side. Our, our defense had been playing on their heels a little bit as their offense had, had realized that they, they completely abandoned the run at that point and just started taking advantage of their size at wide receiver. They've been moving the ball pretty well there, there in the fourth quarter. So, you know, going 40 yards, going 65, 70 yards didn't seem like it was going to be that big of a difference. Well, and the funny thing, kind of to your point, right? I mean, Fitz had made um, some uh, poor in-game time management decisions earlier in the season, um, a notable one of which he actually apologized for on TV immediately after the game. And he did no such thing after this game. He was very much like... I thought we were going to get it. I thought the game would be over. We did get it, and uh, I'd do it again. And I was like, "Well, all right, you're owning it." So he he, he did take um he did take responsibility for what I thought was a far more egregious mistake, and that was the double reverse wide receiver option pass uh, at fourth and half a yard from the two yard line. Right. Yeah that yeah. that was a much worse decision. Yeah, that was that was a little. I think as as we talked about, I think it was it was all part of McCall's long term plan to uh, to back them way up. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, and and you know the the play to Thorson, awesome play, freak injury. You know, I mean it's it was just really rough, but the play worked perfectly. Um, and you know, I, I don't have any complaints about that or anything. And you know, it just felt I felt like you know defense was kind of still getting off the bus during Kentucky's opening drive. But aside from that, kind of like the defense has been getting off the bus all season long. Yeah. And then I don't, and then, I'll be honest. Well, I don't think it's fair to characterize it that way. Cause yeah, I think fair, I think fair. we, or, play, or, I think no, we play a very right. base. More like, and... more, more like the team had a difficulty getting off the bus for the first half of the season. No, <laughs> no. The first, I, the first third. I think there are a number of games, Iowa, Michigan state come to mind where I think we played, I think we made a strategic decision a lot of times in the first series on D to play pretty vanilla, pretty base, see what the other team did, and then adjust to it. And it worked. I mean, it worked a, a lot. Point. It worked in this bowl game. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, no, you make a good point. And 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 I think you know my larger point was aside from that first drive, I felt like we were in control the whole game. Their defense against our run game was about exactly what we thought it was going to be. Um, and and. Of course, with all the ejections and injuries, things got so crazy and that kind of threw everything up in the air. But Matt Alviti came in and was great. Um, couldn't have asked for anything more. I mean, his accuracy overall wasn't great, but he hit long passes when he, need to, he, when he needed to. He ran the ball very well. I was so pumped just that he was going to get the opportunity, and I'm so glad that he made the most of it. But, but again, we, we, like— John, last week we talked about other ill-fated Northwestern backup quarterback moments, um, <laughs> and there were not many good ones. So the, fa- the fact that that worked out in such a huge spot was— um, really a dramatic change of, of turn for Northwestern football history. Yeah, right. I mean, we, 
we all go back to like the Nick Kreinbrink era. <laughs> and not, not to mention, not to mention the amazing, uh, what was it? CJ Bechet, Mike Kafka, and, um, oh, who am I forgetting? Ended his career as a wide receiver. Um, uh, Evan Watkins? Uh, Andrew Brewer. Andrew Brewer. Brewer. That just giant disaster at the start of that season when Brewer and, and Kafka were both woefully unprepared to be in the mix. And Do, uh, do you remember Kafka's first snap? Like the 30-yard negative fumble against oh, uh, Indiana? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then he went into hibernation for four years and came out a completely different person. And and now and and later an NFL quarterback. So yeah, no, but but it was. I mean, and and t- I guess to that point, Alvidi was seasoned and ready for the moment, and it was a huge luxury. That was a luxury we kind of took for granted for his entire career because it really was almost never called upon. But he was ready. We had a fifth year senior, four star recruit quarterback, and and he was ready to do damage, and he did. And and it was it was great that he got the chance to do that. But again. Except for the very end of this game, it felt like we were the better team. It felt like we were in control. And then suddenly it almost went against us. And it almost is like, this is the price you pay to be a Northwestern football fan. But at the, at the end of the day, Cat, uh, you know, Cat's come out with the W, 10-3 uh, and three on the season uh, with a bowl victory. And, uh, you know, kind of feeling... For the most, for the most part, pretty good going into the off season. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week. You know, the big question mark. You know, obviously, you know, losing JJ, um, you know, losing Cairo and uh, Godwin uh, out of the secondary, um, Lancaster on the Lancaster D-line. on the D line, yeah, for sure. Um, but now with the big question mark of, of Thorson and uh, what you know what his recovery from that ACL injury is going to be. Uh, that kind of, you know, coupled with the, uh, the really tough schedule that next year brings, um, you know, kind of puts next season into even more of a, of a bit of a question mark. I mean, uh, I know Inside and you wrote a, a pretty interesting piece on whether or not Northwestern should be looking at a potential grad transfer a la Russell Wilson, uh, or someone of the Russell Wilson ilk, uh, to come in and, you know, kind of, run the show for a year if uh if Thorson does end up taking a medical red shirt uh or is it and is it Andrew Marty is he going to be ready uh is TJ Green uh does he have it in him to to take the reins uh will we will we go even to a, a younger kid i mean what uh what are we what are we going to look at at quarterback and I, I think you know some of those questions will be answered in spring ball and you know others we're not going to know until we step on the field uh, August 30th down in West Lafayette. The one thing I'll say on that is, yes, we don't have a seasoned quarterback, but I think a lot of people are really quick to forget how big of a recruit Aiden Smith was. He was a big recruit, and he's very highly rated, and people need to remember that the only reason he did not have more offers than he did is because there are very few spots for quarterbacks. This is a guy who was a very highly rated recruit, a high three-star guy, um, a guy who won national seven-on-seven, a national seven-on-seven championship with Ben Skoranek. I am putting my money on him, and I uh, my feeling is 
if if necessary, it's going to be him and he's going to be ready. But again, that that's putting the cart way before the horse. I do not think we're going to pull in uh, a transfer quarterback. Um, I'm not completely ruling it out. If it was going to be someone, the red letter name is Keller, Kellen Christ, um, who had a Northwestern offer coming out of high school uh, and certainly is that academic fit. If I was Keller Christ, I'd do it in a second because he could have an undergrad degree from Stanford and a grad degree from Northwestern and pay for none of it. That seems like, regardless of what your NFL future is, that seems like a, a blue chip move. Um, and, and, but, he get, and he'd get to play against his uncle for a game. Yeah. His uncle is Paul Christ. Well, oh, don't, for, don't forget he started at Notre Dame. That's where he started his career too. Right. So again, the he certainly checks uh, a lot of the the right boxes. But with that said, um, it just it's not at least as pertains to quarterbacks. Not a typical Northwestern move, and especially I, especially when you've got a couple guys on the roster who, even though they haven't played yet, were big recruits and are going to play for us eventually. John, I, I agree with you generally. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we take a guy. What would shock me is if that guy won the job. Mm. I, I think it would be very much in the in the Northwestern ethos to take a, a, a senior guy to be the backup. And, you know, we just got done talking about Matt Alvidi, a, a five-year guy with, you know, a great high school record, et cetera, who, you know, was our, I guess, our insurance policy this year. And, and, and one that maybe I underrated um, based on, on what we'd seen on the field the last couple seasons. But I think there's a, a much more likely chance that we take a guy who's, you know, he knows he's not going to play. Maybe he's looking, you know, that grad degree is, is uh, pretty compelling from Northwestern. Maybe he just wants a bit of a treat and change of scenery coming back home. Um, maybe the, you know, Stanford or, or, well, I, I stand for because we're just talking about Keller Chris, but you know the, the the team that he plays for currently maybe doesn't look like they're going to be in as good a shape next year. That like there's a lot of potential you know things that could lead somebody to to make that decision. I, I think it makes a lot more sense that we bring somebody in to be the insurance policy, the backup, the guide for these young QBs because I mean like Fitz talked about Randy Walker had this policy and Fitz has continued it of. We want to bring in a quarterback recruit every single year to push the guys in front of him, and I like bringing in a transfer doesn't feel like the like it fits with the approach they've taken with these recruits, with the promises that they've made to these recruits. And if and if Fitz is anything, I feel like he's um, pretty honest and straightforward with his players. The I think it makes a lot more sense that they're going to try and groom and, and bring up one of these guys that they've that they've brought in that's been uh, with the team that understands the playbook, the terminology, et cetera, et cetera. So, I, my money's probably on Aiden Smith. Uh, I know um, uh, Marty is is well regarded as well, and uh, there's even even some talk about the the freshman we have coming in next year. You know, Thorson started as a freshman, so we'll see. It'll be interesting. I think I think it's pretty it's pretty clear to me at this stage that Thorson is not going to be back. Um, and I guess it's a lot better that we know this now as opposed to in spring ball or uh, in even worse in fall camp. Well, Thorson won't be back for the beginning of the season, for sure. I mean, right? I mean, that that's that's pretty clear. Uh, ACL, I mean, no one's come back from an ACL uh, surgery in six months. But the question is, will he try to come back for the end of the season? And if if that's the case... Does, you know, 
to me, that doesn't make sense. Uh, that doesn't make sense for him. That doesn't make sense for him to try to impress NFL scouts. You know, I, I would, to me, it would make the most sense to try and get that medical red shirt and, you know, see if, and see if it, if it makes sense for him to, to come back next year, uh, to get that extra year of, of playing time or, to see if he's got enough tape down to, to see if he could make the jump to the NFL uh, after, you know, just his body of work as it stands. I wouldn't be surprised if he's not interested in a sixth year. I mean, that, that's a, that's a long, that's a long time, right? Like, yeah, I mean, Hey, I, it, it's possible. I, as far as next season in an event where he comes back, it's worth remembering that, Midway through the season next year, we begin a stretch where we basically play every good team in the Midwest. <laughs> with in one like a, exception. Maybe yeah, with two. One, yeah. Um, but we, we play a, a murderer's row schedule basically in five of five of the six with like Rutgers and then every other game in a six-game stretch is against, you know, Notre Dame and, and a lot of the powers of the Big Ten. So um, – that could be the target date he's looking at. But again, right, the important thing is for him to get healthy, and that's certainly the most important thing. Right, and like Sammy said, if if that means that he takes the extra year, gets healthy, and then comes back and adds to the tape, or even, you know, if he's, it's, you know, the guy's earned it. If he's not able to get all the way back next year and he just wants to get healthy and then move on, you know what I mean? Like, he's he's earned any and all of those options. And if he's played his last game as a Wildcat Fine. Obviously, again, this is all way, way premature. But again, he's he should begrudge nothing. I mean, he's he's given three years of of blood, sweat, and tears to the cats, and that's plenty. Four, but really? Yes. I mean, that that you know, don't forget the redshirt year that he he took as a true freshman. I mean, he right. put in the the time and effort there as well, for sure. So, so given the schedule that we've talked about, and and basically just you know, for people who who don't have it in front of them. Michigan, at Michigan State, Nebraska, at Rutgers, Wisconsin, Notre Dame, at Iowa, at Minnesota, Illinois. I mean, that's from from our bye week. Like, we play Purdue early and Duke early season, but, I mean, the, it's the, a, the, it's the a regular season schedule is rough. And <laughs> yeah. unless the NFL comes and takes Brian Kelly away from Notre Dame, like, I mean, that'd be, that'd be one thing that would maybe help this. Uh, maybe if they take Jim Harbaugh, that'd be another thing that would help this, but... There's not a lot of help out there for us, like given given what Wisconsin is doing, given that you know Scott Frost to to me is going to be the the Jeff Brome of next year, like a really dangerous coach with a with a pretty subpar team. I you know I'm not worried and, about and, Minnesota or Iowa really, but 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 like, start and starting off the year with the Jeff Brom a yeah, year in, yeah. and then a, a Duke team that's probably going to be even better than they were when we played them this year. So point being, we've lost Justin Jackson. We're going to lose um, arguably our three best players on the defensive side. You could maybe say Gaztown and, and Patty Fisher are, are, you know, are, are ready and able to step into those leadership roles. We've got a lot of ex- of experienced and strong players in our secondary too. So I'm not like this is not a woe is us, the sky is falling type situation. But does next year psychologically become a little bit of a rebuilding year, knowing that you're going to be breaking in a new quarterback, certainly in the first half of the season. Jeremy Larkin looks awesome at running back, but you know losing JJ, who who was not only a stalwart on the field and just an incredible, um, an incredibly durable 
and reliable player for Northwestern. Like he was the rock that the last four seasons have been built on. And beyond that, he was just so clearly a leader and a face of the team and a, a positive influence on his teammates in the locker room that I, you know, that loss, I think you could look at the, at Sanjay Lumpkin and the basketball team and draw some, some parallels, at least from the, um, from the locker room and, and team culture aspects. I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting that the team's going to fall off a cliff next year, but it feels like there's a lot of moving parts and maybe it's, maybe it's easier to say, you know what, Thorson, don't, don't worry about it. Like do what you need to do. And we're going to have the pieces in place to make a run at the big 10 again in 2019. Maybe I, I, I just pulled up the 2019 schedule just real quick um, at Stanford, UNLV, Michigan State, at Wisconsin, at Nebraska, Ohio State, Iowa, at Indiana, Purdue, UMass, Minnesota, at Illinois. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably maybe a touch easier than this season. I mean, we're, we're so far putting the card against the horse because, again, like we don't know. You still got spring ball. You've got fall practices. It could be that one of the QBs is just lighting it up and everyone's like, wow, watch out for this guy or something like that, you know. We're still so stacked on the defensive line. We have a freshman All-American on the defensive line. We have basically a freshman All-American at middle linebacker. Um, and and you never know. We've got maybe Keith Watkins coming back finally healthy. I mean, dare to dream. Um, and and a couple of other things. So the I, I just feel like the defense is still going to have a lot of strength next year, even with everything that we're losing. But... I correctly pat myself on the back, called that we would win 10 games this year. I didn't think it was going to go down the way that it went down, but 10 wins is 10 wins. Do I think we're going to win 10, win 10 games next year? No, I do not. <laughs> uh, but the, but with that said, um, I think, you know, it, it, there's so much more to shake out. Obviously, we're going to have so much more to talk about when we finally circle back around all this in the summer, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I think more like making a bowl game is probably a reasonable expectation for next season. And, um, and you know, and if we can do that, I think, you know, that's probably a, a happy a happy way to go, especially if Clayton's not able to play. There's eight very winnable games on our schedule next year. I mean, like some of the several of those are on the road at Iowa's tricky, at Minnesota's tricky, at Purdue uh, as well. But there's eight very winnable games on our on our schedule next year, and it doesn't take much squinting to see us up, up knocking on the door of ten again um, when you factor in a bowl game. And, and 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 maybe I'll use that to like the thing that I really wanted to get to tonight is. When we when when we when we won that Gator Bowl game in 2012, and it felt like the program was ascendant, and that the building blocks that Fitzgerald and his staff had put in place, they had su- successfully navigated the transition from Randy Walker. They had successfully navigated Fitzgerald's um, uh, lack of experience as a head coach. They had um, won some critical recruiting battles. You think of Ken Coulter coming coming over from Stanford, some of the four stars that we were starting to get. You had seen um, the, the, the defense start to emerge in Fitzgerald's image. And it just felt like Northwestern's time was arriving. And then the following season, like there's not much more that could have gone wrong the following season than did go wrong. And then the next year, you know, you had uh, 
Trevor Simeon get injured the the you know in the Purdue game and and we fell apart against Illinois. That's all. That's another backup quarterback situation we didn't talk about last week, Sammy. Um, uh, yeah, the Zach Oliver experience. But it, it it at the end of 2014, it felt like the Gator Bowl was the aberration, and that Northwestern was still a six to you know a five to seven win team that was going to have to fight and claw every single year for uh for for notoriety and exposure and. Two years later, after, you know, inauspicious starts in both of those seasons, but a win over a extremely well-regarded Pittsburgh team, uh, and then this bowl win against a ton of adversity and and, and an SEC squad that uh, chanted SEC at us and had no right to do so. Um, I, I feel, I feel like I felt after the bowl, Gator Bowl season, and now it feels like 2013 and 14 are the aberrations and that Northwestern is reaching another level of consistency, a, a 7 to 10 win level of consistency as opposed to a 5 to 7 win level. And that is really, really exciting. And and no matter what happens next year, because of all the stuff we just talked about, I don't think that changes that. And I think, you know, you factor in some of the, the off-field things, the the new facilities at Northwestern, uh, Fitz, Fitzgerald's. Not that his star is rising, but I think um, he's he's gaining more and more respect in, in the community and amongst recruits as, as, as things carry on. It just, it, it feels like Northwestern is in a really great place. And I thought this victory, winning back-to-back bowl games for the first time in program history, um, doing it with that type of adversity in a spot where we were really favored to win. There's a lot of times that Northwestern is favored to win and, and cannot uh, get it done. I thought it was so critically important for Northwestern uh, to, to notch that Music City Bowl victory, um, to continue building, to continue breaking down some of these you know small dominoes of things that we've never done before. And uh, and it just feels like a really great place to be in now from a from a high level like thirty thousand foot program view. And, and you you talk about you know Fitz's kind of exposure on a national level. You know, there's no greater exposure than to be on you know the ESPN MegaCast for four or five hours talking, uh, basically narrating the national championship game, which he had the opportunity to do. Uh, which was amazing. We're going to talk about the national championship game here in just a sec, but I mean, talk about you know exposure and and having the ability to be in every recruit's living room, uh, you know, letting all of these kids hear how you're breaking down the, this game. Well, I mean, and not and not only that, the other five guys were all either like quarterbacks or offensively focused guys, quarterbacks or quarterback whisperers. They all deferred to Fitz on pretty much every defensive situation. And like, well, what would you do here? So Fitz did a lot of talking. It was pretty great. He was pretty, and he was good too. Like he didn't, I, I saw some, some um, commentary that like this coach's room was a lot more balanced and less egomaniacal than others have been in the past. And I, I tuned in a couple times and it felt like the room was almost dead and I, ne- I never stayed long enough to really to really um, see how they interacted. But Mike Gundy was like a, a friggin statue next to, to Fitz. So uh, th- that was that was good for uh, for Pat. And then um, you've got someone who doesn't have a job right now, but Arizona might be calling. Let's let's be honest there. And then yep. Bobo was clearly happy just to be in the room. 
<laughs> I mean, so, Matt, so is Matt Luke. I was going to say, yeah, Matt Luke, so is is Luke. In that is in that spot as well. And then you've got Cutcliffe, uh, like... Cutcliffe and Fitz staring each other down across the table. I right? was loving it. I was loving oh, it. It was, they, it, I mean, was, it. It was really good for Fitz, and he, he sounded like like he came off really really well. He he didn't th- he didn't drop enough go cats for my taste, but you know, I I just I just love Cutcliffe being like, yeah, it's third and ten here. Now, what what would you do here, Fitz? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> could you please diagram exactly what you would do here? <laughs> and then not not like we're me. coming not like we're coming to Evanston in just a couple months here or anything but uh, well, that was the funny thing about it is as and I'm sure like a lot of people the casual fans didn't know that but like we play Duke every year it seems like and Cutcliffe and Fitz you know have faced off and way but they're more they're than... real tight you know Cutcliffe oh no and Fitz. for sure oh and 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 I mean you couldn't ask for two better guys especially Cutcliffe uh, with all due respect to Fitz, to be in a coach's room, Cutcliffe is oh god, yeah, and it was it was so funny. I mean, the internet had a lot of fun with it, but uh, a bunch of guys who have seen it all and diagrammed it all, watching a game winning play, a, a game winning forty one yard touchdown pass with like no reaction. Uh, Gundy and Cutcliffe literally had zero reaction to an absolutely fantastic play. Bobo and Luke had a pretty fair reaction but boy i mean fitz had a little sumlin had a little and then gundy and cutcliffe had none being like yep yeah, oh safety's not gonna get over that's uh, touchdown and that's pretty much all that they said gundy didn't even move yeah <laughs> i was like w- wake that guy up <laughs> uh l- let, let let's save the, the rest of this talk we're gonna get back to the national championship here in just a second but now as we're talking coaching do want to mention briefly, um, Northwestern did have a few changes on the coaching staff for the first time in like a mil- million years. Um, Jerry Brown. Not, not the one we all want. Not the one we all want. <laughs> uh, Jerry Brown announces his retirement after 25 years. I mean, that guy's been with the program forever. And, uh, you know, he absolutely deserves to, you know, go off into the sunset, play some golf. I mean, he's been a warrior for Northwestern forever. And uh, congratulations to him. Um, has, has any Northwestern coach put more of his guys in the NFL than have come out of the defensive backfield from Northwestern in the last 20 years? Yeah. Good point. Ibrahim Campbell's on his watch and Sherrick McManus. McManus. Sher- yep. Sher's gonna Blackman. There's, there's a ton of guys. Yep. And uh, and Godwin's going to join that group, and Kyle's probably going to join that group too. Uh, yeah. So, congrats to Jerry Brown. Um, you know, couple other changes now with the the tenth uh, assistant coach, you know, coming into effect. A uh, couple former Northwestern players uh, making their way back to Evanston. Um, Louis Ieni uh, coming to coming back to Evanston, uh, leaving Ames, Iowa. He was the a running backs coach for Iowa State. He now takes over as the running backs coach for uh, the Cats uh, and also takes on the mantle of recruiting coordinator uh, from Matt McPherson, who makes a move uh, over to the defensive side of the ball where he will be coaching the safeties, I believe. Yenny uh, was, was a captain on the team during John and I's uh, days in school and was I, I mean, he was one of those guys that had so much promise, and I think I think injuries kind of prevented him from making more of an impact on the field. But I'm really excited about Ayeni coming over. 
particularly because of how good the the Iowa State where he came where he's coming from running backs have been. I was going like to say their ball how, security, their, how many their tackle times, breaking, like how many times can you be like, "Woohoo, we're getting an Iowa State guy." <laughs> but this is but like this is this is this is that year. We're getting a Northwestern guy who has proven himself um in in, in another locale that's, you know, hard to recruit to, etc. and I just I I think this is a great fit. I'm really excited about it. The one interesting thing for me about Aini is he's going to be taking over as our recruiting coordinator and um, it's it's just so weird because he's coming from Iowa State, the country, the country, the college that by far puts out the most scholarship offers in the nation. It's not even remotely close. I think it's like over 300 um, kids that they offer. And he's moving from that system to Northwestern and the second who offers the second fewest amount of scholarships in the country. The only team that offers less scholarships than Northwestern does is Stanford. So it's just so funny. It's just you're you're going from one completely different approach to another. Um, obviously, though, I mean, he's a Northwestern guy. He knows what Northwestern offers. He knows how to sell the program. And of course, he's going to continue to have, I'm sure, a ton of support from McPherson and everybody else, but a, a, a player and a captain in that role. Sure. A, a former player and former captain. To me, that's like a perfect fit. Uh, so McPherson goes from running backs coach to uh, cornerbacks. Uh, he, you know, played linebacker uh, when he played back in the day. Uh, so he goes back to the defensive side and coming uh, over from the NFL uh, comes back to college Uh Former Northwestern linebacker will be coaching the safeties now. Tim McGarrigal. McGarrigal. Tim McGarrigal, Scuzz, once visited 2213 Ridge Avenue, where we we made our home as a guest of several of the uh, women's basketball players at the time who uh, our roommate Garth was was friends with. So... um, And and also, pretty good football player, too. For for the uninitiated, (laughs) uh, the leading tackler in FBS history. Right. That's right. I mean, he's so, I mean, another fantastic get, and I love that now you've got Fitz in the fold and I mean, you've got Fitz in the fold, but also McGarrigal in the fold and it's just such a linebacker group. I love it. The inner, the other interesting thing to me about this is, is the McPherson move. So we know that McPherson uh, has been recruiting coordinator for the team the last few years. He's been coaching the running backs to great effect, I might add. Uh, he interviewed for the Western Michigan head coaching job last season after P.J. Fleck went to Minnesota. Did not get the job. I think part of this, I think he's effectively moving into um, Jerry Brown's old role as assistant head coach. It's it's not really a... Um, Nobody really knows what that title means, but I I think that they are grooming McPherson, not necessarily as Fitzgerald's replacement, but I think this is Fitzgerald trying to develop some of the talent underneath him on his coaching staff. And I think he he certainly doesn't want to lose McPherson, but I think he he would like for McPherson to be able to get a job. I and mean, I don't I don't think it makes sense that that McPherson is waiting to replace Fitzgerald. That that seems crazy to me. Um I I would maybe prefer that they do this in the way of like make McPherson offensive coordinator and let other, other folks write off into the, um, the sunset or whatever that you write off into when, um, it shouldn't be the sunset. But I, 
I think that's an interesting and good move. I'm, I, I would much rather see this than see McPherson leave for another team to take on an offensive coordinator role to try and, and develop his bona fides to be a head coach. So, yeah, those are the, the changes to the coaching staff. Like I say, first time in a long time that we've, we've seen any changes. Um, you know, we'll, you know, kind of close the book on the Northwestern, uh, 2017 slash 18 season. Well, actually, it was just the 2017 season. Uh, we'll close the book on that, uh, before we can close the book on the 2017 college football season as a whole. Uh, we would be remiss. Uh, we've gone this long. Um, and only barely spoken about uh, what was one of the most exciting finishes uh, to a national championship game I've ever seen. Um, Whoa, Nelly! Yeah, that was. I mean, I, I can't. I can't say it was the most exciting uh, game start to finish I've ever seen because uh, early on that that game just was uh, a defensive battle, and you know, just you know, a lot of three and outs early. Uh, Alabama, Georgia, you know, didn't do much in the first quarter. Um, you know, Georgia put some points on the board in the second when they uh, were able, finally able to establish the run. Uh, and then, you know, after taking the 13 nothing lead into the half, Bama comes out of the half and uh, pulls Jalen Hurts. Going to true freshman, Tua Tagovailoa. Uh, more of a, a pure pocket passer. Uh, and... In doing so, kickstarts the Alabama offense. Uh, all of a sudden, get, gets that gets it going um, with the benefit of some fortuitous uh, officiating blunders, um, <laughs> and is able to uh, bring Alabama all the way back. Uh, ties it up, has an opportunity to win it in regulation. Uh, fortunately for the uh, Bama kicker who missed the kick that uh, would have won it in regulation. Uh, Bama was able to win it in overtime with one of the most beautiful uh, 41-yard touchdown passes. Um, you know, Tagabaloa to uh, Devontae Smith. Uh, we, we'll be talking about that pass for a good long time. Um, just the way uh, Tagabaloa looked off that safety, um, you know, getting one-on-one -on -one coverage. Uh, Smith uh, against the corner who is expecting help and, uh, you know, a easy, easy looking 41 yard touchdown pass. Alabama is your national champion. I, I want to address the, um, what I see is kind of like faux drama around bringing in Tua to this game. Cause I think Twitter acted shocked. The coaches room acted shocked. Both of the of the national college football podcasts that I listen to, um, the Solid Verbal and the Audible, expressly talked about Tua as a change of pace to come in in this game, especially if if Georgia is able to to kind of stymie the the Alabama run game and if they need and if they needed to get more aggressive on offense. And I was not shocked at all. I think you also heard Kirby Smart say that he he was expecting Tua to play in this game and and to come in. The other thing that's really worth pointing out is that he had over 50 passing attempts during the regular season with Alabama. They had so many games where there was an opportunity for uh, the second-team offense to come in. I mean, he had uh, 10 attempts against Vanderbilt, 12 against Tennessee, um, 5 against Ole Miss, 9 against Fresno State. Like, he played with 
I won't say regularity, but with like he got a fair amount of snaps this season, and I think in the post game interview, Saban was pretty clear. Like I thought, we needed to pass to to win the game, and he's better at that than than hurts. So that's you know that's what we did, and it made a ton of sense. So I. I just I thought ESPN tried to manufacture a lot of kind of drama around that, and I and I feel like folks that weren't um, maybe as dialed in uh, to to how Alabama had operated and and what Hertz's strengths and weaknesses were were surprised by this when I when I think it really shouldn't have been a surprise. The way he performed and how good he looked at times to me was maybe a surprise, and I think what's interesting is that he had some real like rookie QB moments, um, including the play before the game winning touchdown, but balance them out with just uh, some incredible moments as well. I think, you know, it's funny. I I wonder when you look at what his ceiling is, because I mean, at some of the plays he made in this game, you're like, if if this guy is being thrown into the meat grinder in the national championship, and this is the way he plays, there's definitely a scenario where people will look back at Tua Tagovailoa's career and remember him winning the national title as a freshman with Alabama the same way people remember Tim Tebow winning a national title as a freshman at Florida when really Chris Leak was the starting quarterback. That, almost oh, the whole... oh, that's a great analogy. I have and, many, many thoughts about that, though, because Tua is is basically Chris Leak with an extra, like, 30 pounds on him. He does throw the ball like Leak. It's, it's, which is, I mean, it's, I, I kind of like his delivery. It's pretty wild. Um, but what's the wildest thing to me about this game is if you look at the win expectancy for Alabama over the last three plays of their game, they could not have won this game any more against the run of play than they did. Go, go, uh, go back th- one more play for the last four plays. Sack, so, sack to push Georgia back to a 50-yard, no, no, no. one-yard field goal. No, no, no. I, I'm just going to look at the last three Alabama offensive plays, starting with their field goal at the oh, end yeah, of regulation yeah. when they had a 90% uh, 90% win expectancy. They missed that. The next time they touch the ball again, Blankenship has just made that 51-yard field goal. So now they're down three, and their win expectancy is somewhere around 50%. And then Tagovailoa immediately takes a 16-yard sack. What was their win expectancy at second and 21, needing three points to stay in the game with a kicker who hadn't done anything and was clearly a train wreck at that point? Um, their the win expectancy had to be down at least 25 percent, if not lower. And then the next play, they win the game. It was just I like that play was so stunning because. The minute he took that sack, it seemed like Alabama was going to lose the game. It just, everything had been going. Blankenship makes that amazing field goal. Alabama comes back, immediately pushes themselves way out of field goal range. And uh, and then they win the game on the next play. It was just incredible. Well, the last thing you expect Alabama to do there is throw a 40-yard touchdown, right? You expect yeah. them to throw like a screen pass to um, Najee Harris, uh, who, who had been just devastating uh, on the edges in that game. And try, you know, try to try to get into like a third a third and manageable, like that's that's what you expect them to do. And for him to to go, uh, and, and go for go for glory and throw throw the deep ball was stunning to me. So what's hilarious? What's hilarious is so I was watching the coach's feed uh, of 
in pretty much the entire second half. And after uh, Tagovailoa takes that sack, um, Cutcliffe comes out and says, okay, this is exactly where Alabama throws the game-ending turnover. And, you know, so he calls it, like, this is the last play of the game because he's expecting a turnover. And then they th- he throws a touchdown. It was, I mean, and what a touchdown, too. He looked the guy off perfectly. Um, it's funny. Scuzz mentioned Najee Harris. And that Najee Harris in this game sums up why Alabama is Alabama and you're, <laughs> and, and you're not. Do you, like, the, they have the running back you've never heard so, of who's no. going to start in the NFL. So first of all, running back you've never heard of is a misnomer because Najee Harris is one of the top five recruits in the country when I he know, came out. But, but so all was Bo Scarborough. Scarborough. So was Damian Harris. And basically, Alabama played Najee Harris in this game because he didn't have miles on him. And they basically could be like, look at this fresh, completely unhurt five-star NFL-ready player that we're just going to put on the field now and throw at you for a bunch of plays. No dings on him, no injuries, not a hint of wear. Uh, We just have this guy in reserve to just throw at you. Um, Just so brutal uh, to deal with. Um, On the flip side, how about Riley Ridley? Or Tito Ridley, as I like to call him. Uh, Totally stepping. I mean, he had something like nine catches on the year and then was Georgia's best player most of the game. Um, A bunch of monster catches while his brother really didn't do anything. Um, Uh, Except except come out of a giant scrum to haul down the touchdown. Yeah, uh, the the game-tying TD. Oh yeah, yeah. Except for the right, except Which, for the TD at the end of the game. There right. was a false start. Right. He was very quiet right up until the right up until the end. But I mean, his brother overall had a, a heck of a game, and uh, yeah, no, it was it just a just a wild game. And the fact that it was a completely different game in the second half than it was in the first half, and Tagovailoa coming out, and all of these freshmen on both sides, where you look and you're like, oh my lord, like. These guys are all going to be back next year. They're all going to be so good. Georgia, even more than Alabama, is bringing in another crop of unbelievable true freshmen, a bunch of whom will undoubtedly play. And it's like, you know, um, the one other thing I will say about this is if you are an Atlanta Falcons fan and also a Georgia Bulldogs fan, (laughs) this has been a rough year. It's 2017 has been a rough go of it, especially if you live in Atlanta and had tickets to the national championship game. Can, can we talk about the block punt? Oh. The block punt that should have been blocked and was what? called back for an offsides that wasn't offsides. That, yeah. that actually, yeah, that one. He, he but, timed it. He timed it perfectly. Except it should. what really should have happened is it, it was a false start. Like, the, the what actually should have happened on that play was false start Alabama because three guys moved on Alabama before the snap. Yes, the the Georgia player had you know he was moving before the snap, but he did not cross the neutral zone. There was no offsides there, but three Bama guys moved before the snap. So everyone who's like, oh, it should have been a block punt, should have been a block punt. No, it had that play been called correctly, false start Alabama. Five yard penalty, re kick. 
I I think the the bigger problem was two Georgia offensive drives that were one that were that ended on uh, missed face mask penalties. Yeah, that was a that was a bigger issue. But at the same time, I, I so I wasn't watching this game like super closely. I was enjoying it. I, I and I was and I watched every play, but I wasn't watching it with the type of eye that I that I observe Northwestern games with. Still. I saw at least two very clear targeting penalties that went uncalled. Uh, there was one on e- one on each side, and another like borderline one against Georgia that I thought so. Like there was there was plenty of uh, of opportunity. Like the, the the Big Ten refs in the national championship game did not do themselves. Um, they did not come out of this with a sterling reputation, and I think it's. I think Georgia probably got the shorter end of the stick, but it, I don't know. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm just in love with, with Tua and, and the way he looked off that safety and then described it in the post game. But it just, it just doesn't, it didn't, it, it felt like the rest were maybe keeping Alabama in the game, but it doesn't feel like they handed Alabama the game. Does that make sense? No, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying that, you know, the refs cost Georgia the game. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that, you know, for everyone who is saying that, they're wrong. Yeah, I, again, I, it stinks for Georgia because you never know when you're going to get the next chance at this, but this Georgia team is a monster. And yes, they lose Michelle and Chubb, but DeAndre Swift looked pretty darn good, and Fromm is clearly a, a, an absolute stud, and, uh, and if you look at all the talent they're bringing in next year, like they should have a stranglehold over the SEC East. Um, and, and that would be cool. It would be cool if a legit rival rose to Alabama on the opposite side of the SEC. Um, and if, if that's Georgia, then that would be pretty neat. But, but on the other side, boy, all, all of a sudden Alabama's got a massive, potentially a big upgrade at the quarterback position and, they're Alabama at every other position, so they're uh, they don't look like they're going to be slowing down. Were you guys pulling against Alabama in this game? If I think I probably was rooting for Georgia a little bit more, especially at the beginning. But once Tagovailoa started doing everything he was doing, I mean, how do you not just get caught up in the the soap opera of the whole thing, you know? And by the end, I was kind of just like this game, like I just you know. I just want to see a crazy end. Yeah, I I, I have a hard time rooting for Saban. Uh, just you know that that's like you're rooting for the Empire. Uh, but you know I I I was enjoying watching the game. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's like, well, that sucks for Georgia. Congrats to Bama. Everyone just shut up now. <laughs> so I like. There's clearly you know Alabama fatigue within college football landscape for a lot of reasons um and to your point sam yes like nick saban is he's bill belichick he's the the evil empire he's you know he he's the the guy on the top of the mountain and everybody wants you know to see him fall off but at the same time i think to me georgia is just alabama 2.0 like like kirby smart is quite literally replicating replicating the Alabama way of running their program at Georgia. And I feel like why would I why would I root for 
the 2.0 version of Nick Saban uh, to establish a foothold and, and become up and coming over, you know, over the guy he learned it all from. I don't know. I just, I, part of, part of my reaction here is, comes from the, um, you know, listening to the audible with, with Stuart Mandel and Bruce Feldman. And they like, it was like, they couldn't comprehend why people weren't excited about this matchup. And they were like, well, I mean, why would you, why would you be, you know, like, yeah, I get Alabama fatigue, but why would you be fatigued of Georgia? They've never, they haven't been here in years, but they're, they're such a, they're a blue blood, blood program. They've been in the conversation many, many times and smart is, you know, uh, uh, maybe not a carbon copy of, of Saban, but certainly cut from that cloth. Um, and he, he's the, a, he's a Saban disciple. So, and, and, and in a way that other Saban disciples haven't, haven't been as as tied to Saban for as long. I mean, this was Saban's guy back in the LSU days. Like this goes way, way, way back their relationship. So, I just, I don't know. I was pulling for Alabama big time, even though it even though it ultimately gave John an extra win in our uh, in our little <laughs> game, allowed him to win by two in the end. Congratulations, John. Um, yeah, let's just... talk. Let's talk all about that and not about my performance in the Westlot Pirates Capital One Bowl. <laughs> so I don't know. I just like to me the. I hated the Yankees when they were the Yankees. I'm I'm, I, I rooted for the Patriots when Randy Moss was with them, and now I'm kind of like, eh, no, no thanks. I don't love dynasties, but this is one that I, like for whatever reason it doesn't bother me that much, and. Maybe I'm I'm especially sensitive to it because uh, as as folks well know, like I married into the Notre Dame family, and the Notre Dame folks, like oh man, anybody but Alabama, they would root for Michigan over Alabama at this stage, uh, USC over Alabama, like they like I I think Whoa, that, that national what? championship they can't they can't get that national championship out of their heads. Wow, that's flabbergasting to me that they would ra- that they would rather see USC. Win. That's a, that's their every year rival. They, they would always rather see a team that they've played win because they feel like it reflects well on them. So in this, like obviously they lost to Georgia, and and they and every Notre Dame person I've ever talked to always says, well, you know, we lost to them, so we'd like to see them win the rest of the way, so it looks good for us, you know. Um. So with with in that regard, like USC, of course they would want USC to win, but I think like even in the Maybe Stanford is a good example, like a team that they really don't like. Um, they would root for them over Alabama because that, that, what, 20, 2013, 24, 2013 National Championship, like, still is just stuck in their, uh, in their minds, stuck in their teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, shall we, shall, shall we move on? Any last, uh, last thoughts on, uh, this National Championship game? Not really. Uh, just folded into the Northwestern transfer talk. Jacob Eason, uh, formerly Georgia's starting quarterback, now Georgia's never quarterback, um, has transferred, but not to Northwestern. Um, he's going to be wearing purple, but it'll be in his home state of Washington. So um, he's that's one less guy on the potential transfer list. That's a that's a great uh, move for both Eason and Washington. Oh, for sure. Now he's he'll have to sit out a year, right? Because he's a sophomore. Yeah, but I, I, believe th- I think so. Browning has one more year, so right. Oh, it, work, it works. Perfect, it, yeah. it works out perfectly for the Huskies. Uh, so real quick before we go, uh, 
as we pivot to hoops, um, Big Ten season uh, now fully in in effect. Uh, Northwestern, as we record tonight, has knocked off Minnesota, uh, eighty three to sixty, uh, in the, in this game, uh, which you know featured. Bryant McIntosh setting a school record with uh, 16 assists in a game. Uh, congrats to him. Uh, moving his way up the career uh, assist record. I think he went from 11th overall to 8th overall in the uh, in the career assists category. I, I think I saw that stat. I'll, I'll need to verify that. But uh, you know, great game for McIntosh. I mean, you know, the catch really with their backs against the wall. You know, going into that game nine and seven, uh, you know, really needing to win and win often uh, if, if you know we're going to get back into the uh, into the tournament discussion, and you know, a win over uh, a Minnesota team that uh, a little bit depleted due to injury um, and due to some suspensions, which I, I don't want to get uh, anyone's blood boiling too much. Too late. Uh, Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, North Northwestern with, with a nice win tonight. Um, I think, you know, we needed a stop the bleeding kind of situation here. This Minnesota team and the situation that they're in was kind of a cure for what ails us. Um, I think if you're looking for some, some positives by this point, you know, the conference is starting to shake out. Um, Wisconsin has their worst team in years. Um, Rutgers is bad. Illinois is bad. Iowa Rutgers is bad. Rutgers almost knocked off Michigan State on the road yeah, tonight. I know they were they played dangerous tonight, um, but it remains that on the season they have been you know pretty you know kind of a mess. Um, but we get to play this Minnesota team again, albeit on the road. We get two against really a historically bad Wisconsin team. Um, we get one against Rutgers. We get one against Iowa. I mean, if this team can find, you know, even some of the magic that has been so sorely lacking that was there last season, this season, that's, you know, that's five wins against really mediocre teams to get to 16. And then from there, you try to cobble together what you can. I mean, it's it's a tall order. Uh, I think we have 13 games left. Even, you know, getting to 20, you're still looking at, you know, 20 and 11, which doesn't feel like a tournament resume. Um, but not, not a lot of good wins on there. Either. Yeah, not right. not with our non-con. Exactly. I mean, like realistically, we need to catch fire in a really big way and take down some of these teams at the top of the Big Ten. Which, to be fair, no one looks like they want the top of the Big Ten right <laughs> now. Um, Michigan didn't want it. Michigan State didn't want it. So, um, if if this kind of mediocrity at the top prevails and we're able to finally catch fire, um, you know, we'll see what can happen. But it's it's a tall mountain to climb at this point. I, I the thing that excites me about tonight, um, and I I thought we might get into calling the game a little bit here as we're podcasting. Uh, but the second half, I mean, the cats were up twenty, you know, virtually the entire second half. Uh, I, Northwestern looked good on defense for the first time in a long time, and yes, like Minnesota is a total mess right now. Um, Amir Coffey's not playing. Uh, what Randy Lynch is that his name? Um, has been suspended. They've got a couple other guys out. Like, but but go back in history and look at times where you know Minnesota or a team similar was missing a good player, and they still gave Northwestern a battle or beat us. Uh, I 
to me, two things stood out tonight. One, the defense looked decent again, and it, it, it's just it was just good to see Northwestern playing good D. Uh, Scotty Lindsay looked a lot better on the offensive side. We've had a number of games where he just looks like garbage. Um, from a shooting perspective, like he's really struggled with his shot this season. The announcers made the point uh, at one stage that Lindsay's offense almost gets a lot better when he is playing better on defense and, and he, he can feed off of that sometimes. But the other thing, and you already mentioned it, Sam, Brian McIntosh uh, with, with a great assist to turnover ratio. Remember last season, he was just the the first half of the year. He, he, he couldn't stop turning over the ball and he was not getting the, the, those big assist games. And then, a switch flipped in conference season and he was able to get it done down the stretch. And so those, those three things in combination, um, if those can persist, this will be a dramatically different Northwestern team than we've seen the first two, three months of the season. And I don't think we should get our hopes up at all anytime soon because the mountain is, is very hard to climb, but at the very least, I think we can expect, um, a bit more respectable uh, play from NU down the stretch here. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see how the, how the chips fall uh, when we get to the end. Yeah. So BMAC tonight, um, 16 assists, no turnovers in the four games before tonight, 15 assists, 13 turnovers. Yeah. So that's right. I mean, I think if you're thinking really optimistically, right, you're thinking if, if exactly what SCUS happens, happens, if we get to a point where we're cresting entering Big Ten tournament, um, that's that's a, a potentially exciting situation. Um, yeah. If this if this team can get it together and find it um, late in the season, then potentially that's a place we could do damage. So um, you know, big big stage coming up on Sunday as uh, we get a CBS game. A nationally televised game, three thirty central in the afternoon at Indiana. Um, you know, this is an Indiana team that isn't really. Oh, they're not good. They're yeah, not they're, good. No, they're not. The, yeah, they're they're not. You know, lighting the lights out out of everyone. I mean, they're ten and seven. We're eleven and seven. I mean, this is a game that we absolutely can win. And uh, <laughs> CBS had different things in mind when they put this one on the schedule. I think. You know, they they put this on the schedule not not that long ago. So yeah, no, I mean, hey, I you're right. It's a big opportunity, and for everyone in the nation who's been like, I'm, I'm only now just checking back in with this Northwestern team. Wait, why isn't their record good? Um, if we can put put a, a face on it, they'll be like, oh, there's the team I remember. So yeah, Sunday against uh, Indiana, then uh, home game against Ohio State and Penn State uh, before heading back up uh, north to Minnesota. Uh, we'll see what happens. I, I know as we close the book on football season, we'll be you know really focusing a lot more on basketball as we uh, move forward. Uh, we'll check in with the women's team and kind of see where things are with them. Um, but don't fear, we will uh, be still talk football uh, as that is all of our first loves uh, as, as we move into uh, into the winter proper. Uh, so you know, stay subscribed to the podcast. Uh, don't go anywhere. Um, you know, we'll we're, we're not going anywhere. So uh, stick around and um, stay with us as we continue our search for the Swolly Grail.
So coming off of that uh, nice little conversation about Northwestern basketball, I can't tell you how happy I am that we smacked the crap out of Minnesota tonight. And let me tell you why. It's because Rick Pitino is a piece of uh, dirt coach and should be fired in the next two weeks. Um, after everything that has happened at Minnesota in the last two years, and let me remind you, basically a gang rape, rape accusation against a third of their, their football team, uh, they have allowed the basketball team to continue playing a player who has now been accused of, who was accused of two different sexual assaults. They weren't criminal charges, and I guess like, quote unquote, the coaching staff and the AD followed school policy. But this just looks horrible. And now this player has been accused a third time. They've finally suspended him. He's been recommended for expulsion. And here's the goddamn quote from Rick Pitino Jr. What am I supposed to do? I'm just the basketball coach. Get the F out, sir. That's what you can do. Is the, uh, it's, it's almost like he's, it's almost like he was taught possibly by some sort of parental figure. Like to do, father, to like do, to, to do things the wrong way. I just, like, this is unconscionable. Um, a, just on its surface, but to be happening less than two years after the catastrophe that Tracy Clays oversaw uh, as head football coach, after the embarrassment of the Minnesota athletic director getting you know all of his sexually harassing texts exposed, um, it's it's pathetic and appalling, and the the University of Minnesota is well regarded in the state of Minnesota, and this is. This is mind-numbing um, stupidity and uh, poor management and administration and just poor judgment, poor humanity. I just if um, you're like if you're Rick Patino in that job at that school, how like you there couldn't be more eyes on you based on your dad and based on where you are to see if you're going to screw it up and you screw it up. Yeah, like what? Like what the hell are you thinking? And like the, the the contrast this with what PJ Fleck did, and I've talked about this multiple times on the podcast because I think it is just so impressive to me. PJ Fleck at Western Michigan, two of his incoming recruits, I guess they were you know they were freshmen, they weren't playing, maybe they were red shirts. They get arrested for um, burglary on campus or off campus or something. Fleck immediately kicks them off the team. But then he has a press conference, and at the press conference, he says, I take responsibility. I have to do a better job setting expectations with the players I bring to campus. I need to evaluate recruits better. This is my fault. I brought these guys here. You mean he didn't sit down and say, what am I supposed to do? I'm just the football coach? I mean, like, I'm John, I'm on the verge of, like, really <laughs> making your dad mad. I just... <laughs> It's so hard to, to not like uh, drop some f bombs here. Like it is, it is again, it is unconscionable. And if Minnesota doesn't get rid of Rick Pitino Jr. in the the relatively near future, um, I mean, I don't root for Minnesota athletics, but their athletic department will be effectively dead to me um, for, for for this BS. Uh, this is this is. It's not in the in the stratosphere of what went on down in Waco, Texas, but um, 
it's bordering on that. And how the hell can you allow that to happen? Not even two years after what happened in Waco, Texas. My God. Wake up, people. I, I, I wholeheartedly second everything that Scuzz just said. Uh, yes. A man. Uh, huh. Um, I'll go in a more positive vein for my S- final Sammy, thought. Sammy, you, you may have to reduce my levels uh, during <laughs> the <laughs> section. I, I had my finger on the mute button. I think we'll be all right. Um, for my final thought, first of all, I just want to return again. Big shout out to everybody who turned out for the Music City Bowl viewing party um, at the Arlington Ale House. I know you've probably been waiting for a couple weeks. Um, and... Uh, because I was away, um, didn't have a chance to, to say thanks so much to everybody who, who came out. There are a couple people that I want to specifically thank. Um, the first, I want to thank the Lagatola family because in addition to coming, um, all four of them to the event, they baked Northwestern uh, shaped sugar cookies, which were delicious. And they gave uh, me a gift for organizing the event in the form of a Disney guidebook because I had mentioned on the podcast that uh, my family was going to be taking a trip to Disney. It was incredibly considerate. You have my great thanks. Um, it, w- it was fantastic. And then kind of in another vein, um, only because um, the concept of the very thing he represents is so fantastic. I want to give a shout out to uh, a guy named Will who showed up um, – at the party, and uh, we spent a lot of time talking with him. He was a great guy. He brought some snacks, and in the course of, of talking with him, um, he basically told the story of how he found the podcast, and he is not a Northwestern alum. He is a Chicago-area guy and a fan of Chicago-area sports. He's out on the Bears. A couple years ago, he went looking for another team. Northwestern football is up, and he became a big Northwestern football fan. And upon becoming a Northwestern football fan, went looking for places where he could follow uh, the team. Um, media programs devoted to Northwestern and found almost nothing until he found our podcast. And we were exactly what he was looking for. And that could not warm my heart anymore to hear. Um, that's why we're running this pod, so that people out there, alums or otherwise, who have been, as we were once, kind of walking in the wasteland, being like, why is there no one doing a Northwestern-centric sports program? Um, we are here to fill that void. And it was really cool to have someone show up um, and say, hey, I'm here because... Um, you guys were offering the the very product that I was out there looking for. So thank you, Will. Thank you to the Lagatola family, and thank you to everyone else who showed up. It was uh, a lot of fun. And uh, ju- just to follow up on on that, um, you know, to, and to all of our listeners, you know, as, as we you know do kind of go into uh, the winter and you know get get out of football season, we'd love to hear from from all of our listeners. You know, we have our voicemail line. Eight four seven two three one cats. We'd love to, you know, shoot, you know, shoot, leave us a voicemail. Uh, let us know what's on your mind regarding Northwestern sports. Um, we, we'll play those on the air. We'll an- answer questions you might have. Shoot us an email, uh, westlawpirates at gmail dot com. Um, you know, we've we're having we've always had great conversations uh, with everyone on Twitter. Uh, and Facebook is a little bit um, yeah, growing more and more as, as it goes. But, uh, you know, let's keep those conversations going because uh, just because football's done doesn't mean we're going anywhere, like uh, like I said just a little while ago. But uh, 
Yeah, I mean, basketball is, is, you know, in full force. You know, conference season is, is here. You know, we got our work cut out for us. Uh, both men and women both, uh, as we look to continue historic runs from last year on into the future as we, you know, have our, our kind of vagabond years, uh, abroad away from, uh, the friendly confines of, uh, Welsh Ryan Arena. Um, and, uh, we'll, you know, bringing it back next year, but, uh, you know, it's, it's good times this year and we'll, we'll stay abreast of all the situations and, uh, all the news and we'll be right on top of it as we move forward. So let me, let me just tack onto that really quickly, just because this February signing day is going to be the least eventful signing day, probably that we've had in the Westlot Pirates era does not mean that we are not still very focused on recruiting and uh, I'm in the midst of working on a, a really big piece um, it, to that end that I hope to have up on our site uh, as soon as I can get it up. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Um, you know, we'll you keep our eyes on the NFL a little bit uh, as, as playoffs continue. Um, Austin Carr, keep getting them checks. Yeah, that's right. Uh, although, you know, with uh, Eric's only, Minnesota only Vikings. Only one more. Only one more. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Austin. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. What other Wildcats do we have uh, still left in the playoffs? We got uh, Carr with the Saints. Is that it? I I think so. I think I'm so. racking my, I'm racking my brain right now. I mean Zach Streif on the IR. Yeah, Streif uh, with he, the Saints also. He's he still gets those checks. Um, oh, and then of course we've got Vikings practice squad member. Yeah, that's right, Afadi. He's getting those checks as well, and uh, and remember, inj- as injuries happen, you know, there's always a chance. You know, the playoffs, guys are hurt. Anyone can be promoted. Anyone can step in at any moment. That that could apply to Carr. Could apply to Adenabo too. So we'll we'll, we'll see how that progresses. Uh, so. In any case, we'll go ahead and leave it there for this week. Uh, head to our website, westlawpirates.com. Leave comments and questions. You can find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at Westlaw Pirates. Call our voicemail line, 847-231-CATS. That's 847-231-2287. And you can email us, westlawpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics. And look for us in the Westlaw Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Skousbaugh, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.